Well, hey everyone, this is Athena and welcome to the All Things Podcast, where we gather once a week to learn and share stories about how God works all things together, writing a story of good because He is faithful and good. Every Wednesday, I'll be chatting with a friend who I know and respect, one of our Redemption Press authors, who will not only share a personal Romans 8.28 story, but also help to give you tips and tools for your life journey. Two episodes a month, we'll have an additional interview with a well-known author, and the other two episodes will include a time for Insider Insights, where I'll answer publishing questions from our listeners. So hey, Let's get started. Welcome to this week's episode of the All Things Podcast. We're going to kick off the show today with a dear friend, longtime author, peer, and Redemption Press and Ravel Publishers author, Dr. Michelle Bankston. Dr. B is an international speaker, national and international media resource on mental health, and the author of three best-selling award-winning books, Hope Prevails, Insights from a Doctor's Personal Journey Through Depression, Hope Prevails Bible Study, and Breaking Anxiety's Grip, How to Reclaim the Peace God Promises. She has been a neuropsychologist in private practice for more than 20 years, where she evaluated, diagnosed, and treated children and adults with a variety of medical and mental health disorders. This doctor knows pain and despair firsthand and combines professional expertise and personal experience with her faith to address her patients' issues both for those who suffer and the ones who care for them. Using sound practical tools, she affirms worth and encourages faith. Dr. Bengston offers hope as a key to unlock joy and relief, even in the middle of the storm. She and her husband of 30 years have two young adult sons and reside in the Greenville, South Carolina area. She blogs regularly on her own site, drmichellebankston.com, and she is also a popular show host of the award-winning podcast, Your Hope-Filled Perspective with Dr. Michelle Bankston. Get ready for a wonderful conversation that was very impromptu right here at the Cove where both Michelle and I are attending a speaker summit put on by the Christian Communicators. Well, hey, I am here today with Dr. Michelle Bankston. We are at the Cove, the Billy Graham Training Center here in Asheville, North Carolina. And we were having a conversation last night about mental health and the church. And just the more we talked, the more we realized, okay, we need to get together and do a segment just starting the conversation on how badly the church needs to step up and address the elephant in the room. 
So, uh, Michelle, as we were talking last night, and with your background, having written a book on depression, a Bible study on depression, and a book on anxiety, what are some things that you found out about those two mental health struggles that the church doesn't seem to really want to recognize? Well, Athena, over 30 years in clinical practice, a lot has changed. At this point, you know, I used to say 10 years ago, by 2020, depression would be our greatest epidemic worldwide. We're there. We're no longer looking forward to that happening. We are there. But the thing about anxiety is that anxiety is really now accepted as the common cold of mental illness. So it's much like when winter comes, we just expect that we're going to get the common cold. Well, as a society, we've just accepted anxiety as if it's just going to be part of our life. But the truth is, that is not what God says, and it's not his best for us. And those of us in the church really need to be leading the path to show that we don't have to live there. There is help, hope, and healing available. And for believers, for those of us who do struggle with anxiety, I mean, if God does not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind, then we have to say, what's wrong with this picture that those of us in the church don't think? I mean, okay, we should be indignant. That's right. And we're not. Well, not all of us. <laughs> we are. We are. But why aren't more people indignant and not to shame anyone who feels depressed or anxious? No, not at all. But to say, wait a second, we are letting the enemy win here instead of taking authority. That's right. That's right. God told us over 300 times in Scripture, be anxious for nothing. Do not fear. Do not worry about tomorrow. And each time he said that, he wasn't saying it to condemn us. He was saying it because he created us and he knows us and knows we would struggle. But we've also been told in scripture that God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. Right. But that would require we do a little work. Yeah, we have to find out what it is that he's given us right. in the word, which means we can't be illiterate. Right. We have to understand what his promises are so that we can say, wait a minute, devil. No, I'm not going there. Right. And that's hard work. Yeah. When I went through that horrible bout of depression and it was clear I had to participate in my own healing, I remember thinking on days, God, this is too hard. I, I'm not sure that I can do this. But I had two children and they were my motivation. I might not have wanted to do the hard work every day for myself, but I was willing to do it for them because I didn't want them to suffer the way I had suffered, my mother had suffered, my grandmother had suffered. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we have to find a motivation that's bigger than ourselves. Well, and we also have to come to it with not only courage, which you did, yes, but humility. Because to be able to say, I'm struggling, 
is a, there's a degree of humility there instead of I've got it all together. I'm a Christian. I'm under the blood. I, you know, I'm a new creation. I'm, you know, and being in denial, which oftentimes we're kind of almost encouraged to do that. So it took courage. Well, especially being the doctor. <laughs> I was supposed to have all the answers, and I thought I did. Mm. But it was only when I went through it myself, and I tried all the things for decades I had suggested to my patients, and those things helped, things like therapy and medication and diet and exercise, they helped. But it wasn't until I realized, look, there's a spiritual root that I've got to deal with. So it did take humility to say, God, I, I'm doing the best I know how to do, and clearly it's not enough. So you're going to have to show me what the missing piece is. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, he tells us in Scripture, if anyone lacks wisdom, to ask of his Father, and he will lavish it yeah. upon you. And that's what he did. He gave me wisdom and discernment, and that's what I share with others who are where I was. But part of the problem is too often the church doesn't want to address mental health issues. Well, it's messy. It's, it's extremely messy. messy. And make no mistake, I do not think it's the church's responsibility to be the treating provider. The church is there to spread the good news and to educate and disciple. But on the flip side, the church can't brush it under the table and act like it doesn't exist. And they have to be a safe place. Absolutely. They cannot, you know, give trite responses. Oh, you just don't have enough faith. You need to pray more. You need to, you know, it's under the blood. You're a new creation. Knock it off. Come on, get over that. You just, you, that's not right to shame people and I mean all you're gonna do is isolate that's right. people if that's the way you respond to them well and that's the Christianese version of pull yourself up by the bootstraps right or other people have it worse off than you what do you have to be depressed about right snap out of it snap Come out on of it. already let me just say if someone is struggling with depression or anxiety don't say that. they don't want to suffer if they could just snap out of it they would. Right. It's not that simple. There is work that can be done, though, and there is help, hope, and healing through the scriptures and through a safe environment. But part of what we're seeing happening, Athena, pastors, 70%, this was before the pandemic, over 70% of pastors admitted to struggling with depression. Where are they going to go for help? They can't turn to their pastor friend who's at the next first whatever church down the road. Right. And how about the pastor's wives and their families? So they isolate. So they isolate. Which only makes it worse, which yes. is exactly what the enemy wants to Absolutely. do, is get you to isolate and be quiet. And that's why we're seeing, sadly, it grieves my heart, but we are seeing an increased incidence of suicide among pastors and ministry leaders. It's heartbreaking, but it is reality. And it this is a mission field that the church has not embraced, but we need to. And if I could just brag on my pastor husband for a minute, who 
If you three, don't, two I year, will. Two years or three years ago, whatever it was, it was January 2018, we brought Dr. Michelle to our church to talk about depression and talk about mental health and the issues that as a church we need to embrace and be a safe place of healing and hope and have resources to share with those and, and make it okay for people to admit that they're struggling. And she, can I just say she knocked it out of the park? I mean, I'm telling you, it was like I was in the back doing a happy dance like, yes! But it was so good. And why churches are not, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm a little baffled that, that churches aren't scooping you up every minute that they can. Well, I think there's a couple primary reasons for that. One is denial. I've had pastors say, oh, nobody's depressed in my church. Well, and then I suppose there's no pornography in their church. There's no domestic violence in their church. Yeah. There's no one who runs red lights in their church. There's no alcoholism. Seriously. You're it's not in, in touch with your church. church. <laughs> right. But if they come out of denial, then I think they have to take a certain degree of responsibility. And that's humbling. And that's humbling. And, and it's messy. Yep. And but, you have to be very brave to do that. And I think another reason why it's not being addressed in the church more often is fear. Hmm. Pastors are the ones who are in the perfect position to say, not only does our congregation struggle with this, but I've had bouts. Whether it's a diagnosable condition or it was just they've hit burnout mm. and now they're feeling down and they're insecure about their calling. It doesn't have to be a diagnosable condition. But if we don't address depression or anxiety when it's small, it will grow and it will occupy as much territory as we allow it. Mm. And it all, you know, I mean, the pastor is setting this, the example. Yes. And, if, and if the pastor isn't willing to say, I struggle, and, and you know, everyone at some point or another is going to have, especially with the pandemic, with every the rooting, looting and rioting and all, I mean, who wouldn't struggle with some anxiety? And the isolation yeah. that breeds anxiety and depression. And we're at the, a place in time, sadly, where we can't trust the news. No. We can't trust the news. We're seeing infighting on social media between friends, family, and colleagues that we've never truly seen that before. Yeah. So I think that is just a playground for more depression and anxiety to come out because who's your safe place then? If the people you love the most are arguing about masks, vaccines, and mailing ballots, how much more could we anticipate that they would be the very ones to attack if we admit, I'm really down. I'm wondering if I'm struggling with depression. I, I'm so anxious because I don't know if I'm going to have a job next week. I don't know if my kids are okay. My kids are not able to go back to school and, and I'm, I can't even be the best parent anymore because they're, on, they're around me 24-7. I don't even get that break. I mean, these are real life issues, but the enemy uses those 
as a breeding ground for depression and anxiety. Absolutely. And if the pastors are afraid to address it, well, who doesn't give us a spirit of fear? God. So who does give us a spirit of fear? Hello? We're playing right into his hand yes. if we are allowing that fear to silence us. One burden that I really have for the church is that somehow, some way, we've got to create a safe place for our ministry leaders. Yeah. Because as they get healing, their congregation will get healing. Yeah. Hurt people hurt people. Yeah. But healed people go on to heal people. And we've got to see some healing happen among our pastors, our pastors' families, our ministry leaders, so that, you know, Scripture says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But those who are in ministry are overflowing all the time to the point that they're depleted. Yeah. They need to be filled back up. Yeah. Well, this whole conversation that we were having last night led to some exciting things that we kind of have in the works. You'll be hearing more about that later. It was so organic. I know. It was I mean, totally it just, God. Totally God. Yeah. So I just want to thank you for taking some little time away from our conference that we're at so we could sit here, talk about this, continue the conversation about it, and, and really set the stage for taking some next steps that we want to take to make sure that pastors are equipped, that they're, they have everything that they need resource-wise yes. to be able to help not only their congregation, but themselves and their families. So thank you for being with us today on the All Things Podcast, my friend. It's always my joy. You know that. Amen. In May, God gave me a vision of a movement. He gave me the name She Writes for Him, and I knew it would start as a book compilation, then a podcast, and finally a conference. Well, here we are a year later, and She Writes for Him, Stories of Resilient Faith, launched on May 12th, featuring Carol Kent, Tammy Trent, and Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith, along with 27 brave women who shared their hard stories of abortion, depression, betrayal, loss, and shame, and declared how God worked redemption in their lives. The second edition is finalizing submissions, and best-selling author Liz Curtis Higgs leads the lineup of contributors sharing on suffering, cancer, mental health, addictions, and spiritual abuse, for She Writes for Him, Stories of Living Hope. This very podcast launched in February of this year, declaring the faithfulness of God in working all things together for good. And when we had to cancel our in-person She Writes for Him writing retreat in April, we hosted the first 21-day She Writes for Him boot camp online and helped take 40-plus women from concept to manuscript blueprint through 90-minute interactive virtual workshops, daily writing tips, and multiple coaching sessions. As the pandemic continued to interrupt our spring and summer conference plans, God birthed the conference I knew would be, but had no idea it would look like this. 
a virtual conference with three full days and 33 plus publishing professionals found 400 hungry attendees waiting and ravishing in the wisdom and the love that was poured out through the presenters. We've rescheduled the retreat for this September and still have a few slots open and another boot camp is scheduled for October. And we've initiated the She Writes for Him Tribe, a monthly membership online where you can learn your writing craft, network, grow, and have a safe place to develop your voice with other sisters who love the Lord. Join the many women finding their writing identity through the She Writes for Him movement at SheWritesForHim.com. Welcome to the second half of today's episode of the All Things Podcast. This is an interview I did recently with Redemption Press author, Dr. Mary Nagelli. Dr. Mary Holder Nagelli is a Presbyterian minister now serving as a hospital chaplain after decades as a parish pastor and seminary professor. She holds degrees from Stanford University and Fuller Theological Seminary, and her mission is to bring the word to life. She's done this through preaching, teaching, and blogging, and though COVID has brought speaking engagements to a screeching halt for now, she loves to spend a weekend with women and men on retreat seeking spiritual growth. Mary's been married to her husband, Andy, for 45 years, and their two daughters are launched and starting families of their own. She is a gourmet cook at home, enjoys quilting, reading, world travel, and getting out into quiet nature. Now, I've got a few little-known facts that I would love to share before we jump into this interview. Mary is an accomplished musician having studied music from a young age and performed in staged musicals and classic oratio. Her most recent role, Sister Margareta in The Sound of Music. She played Dolly Levi in Hello, Dolly! in high school. Mary's working on the quilt she designed and started sewing in 2005 based on designs embedded in the architecture of the Ahawani Hotel in Yosemite Valley, one of her favorite places on earth. And as Mary's husband is proud to brag, Mary edited the Bible. That is, she served as an editor for the Serendipity Bible for small groups in the 1980s. I love that. So with that, here is our recent chat about her new book, Deep Breathing, Finding Calm Amid Cancer Anxiety. All right. Well, Mary, welcome to the All Things Broadcast. It is great to have you on today. And uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to our time together. Thank you. Me too. It's a, it's a great privilege. And, and I hope everybody who's listening today uh, finds some blessing in our conversation. Amen. So we're going to just jump right in to your, uh, and this doesn't have to be your all-encompassing Romans 8.28 story, but and I always love for our listeners to just get a good glimpse 
of, uh, you know, the backstory of our guests. And Romans 8.28, when he, I mean, we all know he works all things, not just good things, all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I would love for you to just share one of those stories of your life with us before we jump into talking about your book. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, there have been lots of um, challenges. Uh, I've been a, a minister and a, a church worker for over 40 years. And uh, those those 828 moments happen really all the time. Right. Uh, more, more recently, I think that uh, the, the illness uh, that I write about in my um, book uh, was a major league interruption of my entire life, right? Uh, everything came to a screeching halt, uh, went into slow motion, and I was in a realm uh, I had never been a part of. So I didn't feel at the beginning like I belonged, like I knew anybody, like I knew what do you do with a prolonged illness. And uh, what was interesting was that uh, I, I came uh, – very uh, early on in the process uh, to an awareness that every single day we're responding to the call of God mm. and, uh, and that we are assigned duty. Now you think that your career, and mine was uh, as, a, as a professor and as a, a minister uh, on not particularly a, a, a straight line career track, but, but advancing and getting more experience and kind of growing in those roles, you'd think that, that that was your duty assignment and you just keep doing that. Well, what happens when you can't, physically can't do that thing? Does that mean your call has ended or that you are no longer useful to the kingdom of God? And um, the answer to that is no. You're, you have been reassigned duty. So that's what I felt like all of a sudden, oh, I have new people I'm working with now. They happen to be doctors and dosimetrists and uh, nurses and all this, right? Just a totally different cast of characters. But what was fantastic to me was, you know, I've been a pastor for 33 years. In the last six, seven years since all this started happening, I have been in, in contact with more people who do not know Christ yet than I ever was as a pastor. And that to me is the big uh, good thing that God has been doing, just simply lifting me up out of one context and putting me into a whole different one right. and say, okay, go for it. So you're a congregation. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And uh, so uh, I, I'd say that on, on the macro scale, that was one of the biggest uh, in the last, in the last few years. Wow. Yeah. And you know, so many people that would go through that, you know, you're, you can't do what your regular job is. And so many of us find our, it's identity. over. Yeah. Yeah. We think if we're not that, what are we? Yeah. And the interesting thing then uh, a year after I was recovered from all that, uh, I was invited to come on the chaplaincy staff of my local hospital, which Again, um, it's a it's a level two trauma center, and uh, there are eight chaplains on the staff, so it's a high priority there. But again, most of the people I talk to are not believers. Right. Most of the people I'm in contact with in a ministry setting are 
not the people I was meeting before. And I can only say God was at work in that whole dynamic mm. uh, to uh, make it possible for me to have a greater impact among those on the edge, those who are now in a place of great need, asking, you know, where is God in this situation? And I'm their chaplain. I get to talk with them about that. It's just fantastic. <laughs> and to be able to then also relate to, I was recently where you're at. Yep. And sometimes you know, I can share that. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I love that. I love how he just gave you a new mission field when it could have seemed like it's all over. Right. He was a reassigning you. I love that. Yeah. So, okay. How did deep breathing, which is your memoir, how did that come to be written? And really kind of how would you categorize the book? Well, um, I'll tell you about it. And, um, and the category thing is the great mystery of publishing at this time, because it is not easily categorized. Uh, here's what happened. Uh, shortly, uh, I was a daily blogger. Uh, as I was ramping into this, this was in the fall of 2013. I was, I was uh, blogging on entirely different topics uh, at the time. Um, and, uh, but then um, in my private life, this uh, illness was starting to set in and it, and it presented as a cough, which was unrelenting. We thought for a while it was pneumonia and all kinds of things. But I, I realized I needed to, start processing this even before I knew it was cancer um, and started taking notes in my journal. And then when it became clear, I was going to have to uh, come clean with my blog audience about what was going on. I started blogging on it. And, he, and this was a funny, funny quote unquote thing. Um, I, once I started treatment uh, for lung cancer, we're talking about stage three lung cancer. So an advanced stage, a dangerous disease with a very low survival rate. Um, I uh, was given chemo and included in the chemo cocktail, so to speak, was a medicine um, that had this interesting effect. All day long after, after my treatments, I would come home and I was a slug. I sat in my recliner and could do nothing. I'd go to bed at nine o'clock, sleep like a log, until 3.30 in the morning, at which time I woke up absolutely uh, alert, ready to take on the world, no nausea, just ready to go. Now, what do you do at 3.30 in the morning? Well, you write. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And so every day I asked myself the question, okay, what took place yesterday? What, what, what am I observing? And what am I learning? What is God trying to say? What, what, how does this relate to scripture? How does it relate to where we are in the church year, which maybe we can talk about later, but uh, it was uh, daily reflections with the medical details right there. But then how does this remind me of what God is doing in me, in us, and how's it going to help me grow as a disciple? Right. So that's how the book came about. Uh, by the way, I will never, ever, ever again write a book off a blog <laughs> not as easy as people would think it's, it was horrible i mean um it we started out i started out with 140,000 words 
and had to get it down to 80,000 words. That is nothing short of painful. Yeah. Uh, but I, it, the, I think that the result is um, readable and it flows well, even with all those things that didn't make it into the book. Uh, but having said that, the category then, um, it's not exactly a memoir. I mean, it, in a very strict definition, it is not a memoir. Uh, it's not a devotional, although there are dated entries for six straight months. Uh, it's not a handbook. It's not a how-to book. It's not a book about how to beat cancer or how to survive cancer. And it, it, that's not what it is. A friend of mine just in the last week attached this phrase to it, which I'm liking. She said she called it a devotional, devotionally created memoir. Ooh. Yeah. Um, I'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a personal story. It's a medical story. It's a spiritual journey story. Right. It's uh, it's a family dynamic examined under the microscope story. It's all those things because those are the things that you think about when you think your life's going to end. Right. Uh, you you know, uh, I, I was not clear for months whether or not I would survive this. So, uh, you know, you have to you have to engage in the, those topics on death, on life, on meaning, on uh, the Lord's coming, on everything. Uh, those all are up for grabs. And I, I address them all, I think. <laughs> I love that. So you structured the book around the church year which is a concept that not maybe not everyone is familiar with. Yeah. So explain the concept and how the framework helped you shape your story and tell your story. I, uh, I am um, in the Presbyterian reformed tribe of the Christian church, uh, but I was raised Catholic and both traditions follow a calendar of emphasis through the year. So uh, the beginning of the year, the New Year's of uh, the Christian church calendar is the first Sunday of Advent. The four weeks preceding Christmas have to do with waiting uh, for, for the Messiah's uh, second coming while we re recall his first coming. There's Christmas tide, and then there's Epiphany, and then there's uh, Lent. So this is six weeks prior to Holy Week and Easter. And... Uh, and so it's just natural for me to keep in touch with that. And in fact, because most of this time I could not actually go to church. Uh, and I, so I was missing Christmas, you know, and m missing Ash Wednesday and missing stuff like that, that uh, I, I was trying to stay in touch with what I knew and what gave shape to my life, even without illness. In retrospect, as I was putting all this together again, I realized that the other threads of my story, there, there are at least uh, two others, the medical story and the family uh, relationship story, followed that flow. You know, when you, when you start out with an illness like this, it's, it, uh, as one person told me, welcome to the waiting room. You wait all the time. You got a right. test on Thursday and you've got to wait over a weekend until you get the results on Monday. It just, you know, uh, and then uh, Lent is a time for intentional spiritual growth and examination of your life. What's a, what's a potentially dying person doing, but reviewing their life story. Right. And so I, I shaped the book. Uh, I mean, I, I, the sections of the book 
are those sections, Advent, Christmas Tide, Epiphany, etc. Because my story actually developed uh, along those same lines until, of course, Easter. I did not cover Pentecost, which is further, uh, but Easter um, is resurrection. And uh, when you get the all clear and get to ring that bell of victory at the end of chemo, um, it does feel like Easter. So that's how that's how that that worked. I love that. So that's kind of where the devotional aspect comes in. That's right. That's right. Because like at Christmas time, I was, I was, I, I didn't want to go to church. Everybody's coughing and sneezing and stuff. And I was in chemo land. Uh, so, so, okay, what I just picked categories like, okay, let's go through the four gospels. What do the four gospels say about Christmas? And I spent four uh, entries on that. And then 12, the 12 days of Christmas, just looking at one particular detail of the Christmas story under a microscope. It was great fun. Those are, those are actually some of my favorite chapters in the book. Mm, nice. Some, some uh, maybe some preaching ideas for pastors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So six months is a long time to keep track of your health and spiritual well-being. Can you identify some turning points or significant moments that kind of propelled you through your lung cancer journey? Yes, uh, there were several, actually, um, in contrast to long periods of time where I felt like I was in the in the doldrums, like, you know, nothing's happening. We're just waiting for treatment to take its course and that kind of thing. But uh, the first one was before I was diagnosed. It was after the biopsy, but before I got news that it was uh, advanced stage lung cancer. And it was the, the day that uh, I rested in the hammock in the backyard and God simply met me there. I don't know how else to put it, but um, looking up through the canopy of the trees um, while my husband did some gardening right near me. And the Lord just said, Mary, I am carrying you through whatever is to come, just like I'm holding you up in this hammock. Mm. And that I looked back on that day through the entire six months. It was kind of an anchor for me. Wow. Um, uh, another time I remember was a friend wanted me to come. He wanted to come pick me up way out of his way, come pick me up and take me to a um, prayer meeting, a, a, a weekly prayer meeting where, uh, and this was at a, um, uh, what you, not a home exactly, it was a whole compound, uh, but it was a safe place for women who had been traumatized or abused or something. It was a safe place for them to make a transition. And, um, and those women prayed for me. And I tell you, I will never forget it. Mm. People who had just amazingly difficult lives and were overcoming huge challenges, prayed with such passion mm. and conviction. Um, nothing happened that day. I didn't feel like zap. I was healed that day, but something did happen. I mean, I, I felt like it was one of many opportunity, many times really when, when, in, when intercession on my behalf had mm -hmm. power. Yeah. Uh, so I thought about that. And of course there was lots of occasion to be reminded of how many people were praying for me through this. Uh, Christmas Eve day was the day that the surgeon uh, met with my family and me to um, say, okay, the treatment you've had so far, which was radiation and chemo, is working and shrinking the tumor. So now it's operable. Before it 
it couldn't be taken out. And so that was that's a big red letter day. <laughs> hey, okay, this is good. And then I'll say the last one was in pre private prayer uh, in February uh, of that of 2014 now, where I was praying my list as usual, and I get to my last thing on my list, which is prayer for my own healing, and the Lord stopped me and said. You don't need to pray about that anymore. It's done. <laughs> and I just kind of let that sit there. I, you know, okay, I did record it in my journal. I thought, okay, let's just see. And so <laughs> I did have the surgery a month later. And the result of all of that was just uh, ecstatic celebration from not only my doctors, but their team members who all paraded into my hospital room to tell me how thrilled they were with the outcome of the surgery and the pathology and all that. Uh, so uh, the Lord did heal me, for oh. which I am incredibly grateful. Well, and, and to be able to grab six and a half years ago, mm -hmm. to be able to grab onto that when He said it, and just lean into that. Yeah, you know, you you always have to. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm a thinker as opposed to a feeler, you know, on the scale. Uh, I but but it was that that definitive voice of the Lord saying, "It's done. You don't need to pray about that anymore." Um, on the one, uh, so I didn't. I didn't pray for my healing any longer. That was my act of faith. But I continued following the protocols, and I amused myself daily with the with the imagination that one day they would take a ct scan and there would be nothing there <laughs> but they had to take it out surgically and that yes. worked you know so uh but yes god god was at work by many different means and i simply was speechless in humility over over that whole thing mm. what do you do with that except yeah. say thank you right right Okay, so you grapple with a lot of questions that came up during your illness. Mm -hmm. And are there any questions that were never answered? Oh, yeah. There were two questions that were never answered. The first question was, why did I get this? And um, I, <laughs> that was one of the first questions I asked my new oncologist. What, what, what have I done, you know, to get this? I had absolutely no risk factors for lung cancer, none. And just to- Smoker, you were, No, nothing. Secondhand. No secondhand smoke, no radon, no nothing. Wow. And um, uh, this is an interesting uh, statistic. I'll, you know, a quarter of a million people a year are diagnosed with lung cancer. Wow. Uh, almost 20% of those people have never smoked or been exposed to secondhand smoke. I'm in that category. That group is disproportionately women and oh. nobody knows why. And oh. so one of the things I'm advocating for is more research money to get to the bottom of that question. That directly affects me. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting is Johns Hopkins about this time and reiterated since did a study to find out what causes cancer. <clears throat> and it wasn't just limited to lung cancer, it was all kinds of cancers. And they, so they studied thousands of case studies of people who had had cancer to find out uh, what percentage of them uh, were 
got their cancer from a genetic predisposition, uh, what was caused by exposure to something and what was caused by consumption. Smoking would be a consuming thing, right? Okay, so they this is what they came to. Two thirds of all cancers cannot be explained by genetics, consumption, or exposure. Only a third of all cancers can anybody ever tell you why you got it. Now, that actually took a load off me. <laughs> right. You know, because right. you, you, I mean, guilt, you, you, there, there are these feelings. Yeah. Well, I did something wrong. Right. I, oh, my diet or something, you know, but two thirds cannot be explained that way. So the, that was the big question. Why did I get this? But as big a question to me was why was I healed? Hmm. There was another lady I, I have, uh, I had another lady, a good friend of mine who was diagnosed the same week I was with stage four cancer. Another lady who had exactly my kind of cancer, same profile, same age. She had the same treatment protocol I did, and she died that year. Mm. You can't, I, I cannot mm-hmm. explain that. So so those are unanswered, and it's good because uh, I, I like to have answers. Uh, I like to have as many answers about life's big questions as I can. But these are the humbling questions. Yeah. And I'll take them into heaven with me. Maybe the Lord will answer them. But I, I've also found that because there are no real answers to those questions, coming up with super easy answers to them is not a good idea. And that helps me as a chaplain. Yep. Yep. I mean, the only thing that even comes to my mind is that, and I don't even, I, I don't even know, remember where it is in the gospels when it was some sickness and it was like, well, why, why? And it was just so God could be glorified. Yes. That was the little boy who uh, was born blind. Yes. And, and the Pharisees wanted to see, trick Jesus, right. <clears throat> uh, see if there was a, uh, was it the parents who sinned and therefore their son was blind or all that? And she said, no, 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 no. God is going to be glorified by his healing. Yep. Like that's yeah. the only thing that even makes sense anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And, and I didn't deserve it. I right. didn't earn it. There isn't right. anything about me. So uh, even, even the easy, well, I consider it an easy answer to say, oh, well, God had plans for you. Well, yeah, but not just me. God has plans for everybody and everybody dies. Yeah. We don't escape that. And right. so uh, basically all we can say is that God is sovereign and mm-hmm. working out his purposes. I'm part of that, whether I live or die. That's right. And so uh, I'm living now <laughs> and- fully and joyfully, uh, but even in dying, I am still living into God's purposes for me and for the kingdom. Amen. Amen. Okay. So in, we're going to wrap this up. I do want to ask one more question before I ask you for a tip or tool. So we know that deep breathing is not a how-to book, but plenty of people are looking for insight to help them deal with anxiety in the current climate. So tell us what your book offers for them. Well, I think that this book, um, which was titled 
before the coronavirus hit. I mean, we almost couldn't call it finding calm amid coronavirus anxiety or even wildfire anxiety. I'm, I live in wildfire uh, areas here. Um, I think that uh, what the book does is model a way to approach challenges. And uh, particularly uh, when we talk about worry and anxiety, um, I'm, I am thrust into a situation at the beginning of the book that I did not see coming. My doctor did not see coming. And uh, I simply asked questions along the way. I, I said at the beginning, I want to be, I want to remain calm, curious, and courageous. Mm. And the curiosity part carried me a long way. One of the things that I noticed uh, with uh, some patients at the hospital is an appalling lack of curiosity about what is going on with their body. And, and I made it my business. Now, I did not go surfing the net. That just plain is a scary place to go. Uh, don't recommend it until you get your doctor's recommendation for papers to read and whatever. But um, it was... Uh, what do I know? What can I know? What don't I know? And what I will never know. Mm. And, and categorizing things like that helped me to dwell on the things where I could do something about it. Right. And right. And then the, the, um, uh, the stuff I can't know and have to make a best guess at, like there was a critical junction where I had to make a decision about, treatment plan, a big fork in the road. Well, you can't know everything. Uh, you just have to go after it as you can and then not worry about it. And, and that's pretty much how I did that. So uh, my, I think that um, staying grateful mm. and keep breathing <laughs> are, are the things that people see me do through this book. Right. And uh, there were so many things to be grateful for. Um, one of the things uh, I was curious about was whether or not people who currently have cancer or just finding out about cancer, whether they would find my book scary, like they'd be reliving details they don't want to be reminded of. But the feedback um, uh, has been really good on that score. People mm -hmm. finding it calming and comforting and hopeful, which mission accomplished. Yeah. And that's that, again, that devotional element, which brings that mm -hmm. focus on what, what's God doing, what's he teaching me, what's, you know, right. throughout yeah. the journey. Right. I may not know everything about how this disease is going to progress, but I do know that God is working on me. I am a project under construction. Yeah. And how can I cooperate with the contractor on that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. Okay. So in closing, I would just love to have you share a tip or a tool with our listeners that would help them keep that focus on and have that perspective when, even when they don't understand or don't see it happening, that he is working all things together for good. I would say that uh, particularly for people who are trying to calm down about something, and it may be a life-threatening illness, it could be this pandemic, uh, that you think in terms of deep breathing, uh, there's, in order to breathe deeply, you've got to exhale first. Mm. <clears throat> so exhale, confess sin, uh, pl place anxieties upon the Lord, 
uh, because he cares for you. You know, the, the, the relinquishing of control over things I cannot control. That's, that's the exhale. Then the inhale is breathing in and receiving grace and mercy, uh, God's kindness and goodness and, uh, all the people who are there to help you that the Lord has sent your way, receiving that and embracing it. And then when you breathe deeply, you can relax. You can, you can actually trust then that God is doing what God's going to do through this thing and hold you together in the meantime. So actually the actual physical act of breathing deeply is extremely helpful <laughs> because right. it slows well, you down yeah. enough to think. Yeah. When you get all hyper, uh, frightened, scared, you can't think, you can't, you can't process and you forget what you need to remember. So breathing deeply, exhaling first, inhaling, relaxing enables, enables you then to really uh, uh, experience a new, in a fresh way, a new way, uh, the presence of the Lord in that moment. Mm. And it helps you to slow down. And that's, yeah. that's when we're all freaking out we're not our minds going a million miles right. a minute and you know and that's when the enemy yeah, just li literally that dynamic shuts down the the frontal lobe of your brain right behind your forehead that is where creativity and helpful thinking takes place hmm. and so if you freak out that shuts down and you've lost your best uh human resource for managing and um yeah you learn that rather quickly that if you want to keep keep in tune like the classic when when the doctor gives you bad news you want to have somebody there with you to be another pair of ears and eyes for you uh that's the reason because you're you all of a sudden you're having a stress reaction and and you might forget half of what the doctor says exactly right so deep breathing i believe in. i it. love that i love that that's perfect all right so if we have some listeners today that would love to connect with you online where is the best place for them to find you the best place for them to find me is on my website, revmary.net. Uh, today, they're going to have trouble with that connection, but hopefully in the next two days, that will all be worked out. Um, it, my website name is maryholdernegley.com, but nobody can spell my name. Right. So, so revmary.net. Rev .net. Yes. Perfect. And I have an author page on Facebook and all of that. So. Where are you most active on social media? With Facebook. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being with us on the All Things Podcast today. It has been just a joy to have you on. Thank you so much. So thanks for joining us today for the All Things Podcast, brought to you by Redemption Press and the Romans 828 Bookstore. So, hey, I'd like to ask you a favor. If you would consider sharing this episode with your friends on social media, of course, only if you thought it was helpful. Or if you haven't yet left a review of the podcast on Apple, I would really appreciate it as, you know, it'll help other people find the show and let them know it really is a good one to listen to. So thank you so much for listening today, and I'll see you next week.